Welcome to this edition of What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. This week, we're focusing on the latest updates to the Northern Ireland Protocol and the impact of the Windsor Framework, a recent key post-Brexit effort to ensure a more stable trade and economic relationship for Northern Ireland, United Kingdom, and the European Union. The Windsor Framework was triumphantly unveiled by British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, on the 27th of February and many more will have their say on the agreement before it's finalized. The agreement now goes to both the British Parliament and the EU member states for a vote, and those vote dates and outcomes as of today are still pending. One other voice with a say on the matter will be our featured guest for this conversation, my Pentagroup partner and colleague, Rory O'Donnell. Welcome, Rory. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, Great to be here. First podcast I've ever taken part in, so looking forward to it. Oh, well, I'm glad to be a a part of your debut. Uh, So, Rory, it's great to have this opportunity to discuss this issue with you because you've been living, breathing, and working on the Northern Ireland Protocol issue for a very long time. Give our audience a brief background on your work and the broader issues before we get to some of the questions about the latest developments. Sure, Kevin. Happy to. When did I start with a little bit about me? Uh, So, people who uh, listen to accents may work out that I, I'm originally from Northern Ireland. I grew up in Derry uh, during the dark days of the 70s and 80s when things were bad. Uh, so I've got quite a bit invested in ensuring that we can build on uh, the great progress that, that was made in the Good Friday Agreement. And of course, we recognize the role played by the US in that agreement. Uh, so so I, I was pleased to work on the protocol. Uh, I was a, a member of the UK Civil Service, so working for the UK government for around 30 years, the last several of which were around negotiations of the various incarnations of the protocol. I mean, in, 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 a, in a nutshell, when the UK left the EU, its only land border with the EU was on the island of Ireland. Uh, the history of Ireland is a complex one, uh, but both sides recognised very quickly that a land border on the island of Ireland would not be a good thing, not conducive to peace and cross-community relations. So an arrangement had to be found to ensure that there was no hard border on the island of Ireland, but that goods moving within the UK were not a threat to the EU single market. And that gave birth to the original protocol. Um, I think what, what people found after the protocol operated for a few months is that it created some problems. Uh, unintended, I would say, but there was a reduction in goods flowing from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. Consumers in Northern Ireland noticed uh, shortages of products on their shelves. Uh, and so it was necessary to look again at whether we could make the protocol work in a better way. So not not have a protocol, but have a more proportionate implementation. And all of that work I was involved for, I would say, 75% of it. All of that work culminated in the Windsor Framework, which, as you said, was announced on the 27th of February. And I'd like to start by, thank, by, by expressing my gratitude to both the teams involved in the negotiations, because I genuinely think it's a really good deal and hopefully will enable Northern Ireland and the UK and the EU to move forward to a more uh, more progressive and better relationship. Thanks. So I think a key part of the implementation will be really understanding how the parties involved got to a deal. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of history here going back to before the Brexit issue ever surfaced. And without going too deep on the fractious nature of the region's politics, let's explore what it was that did go right with the politics of this moment. So what do you think were the elements that came together so that the Windsor framework could be achieved? 
So I, I think the most important element, and it was very obvious for people who watched the press conference between the Prime Minister Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen, the positive chemistry between those two political leaders, I think, was really important. Uh, negotiators can negotiate anything, uh, but what they really need is political leadership. Uh, and and I think previous UK prime ministers maybe ha- had a less good relationship with their European counterparts. But it was very obvious in the relationship between Sunak and von der Leyen that it was that it was good and positive, and that created the space for negotiators to find solutions. Uh, what I've said to a few people is. It's as warm a relationship uh, as a UK Prime Minister has had since Tony Blair took over in 97 and visited Europe and was welcomed with open arms. Ever since then, things have been increasingly difficult and it's good to see there's now a positive relationship because with with positive relationships, problems are easier to solve. Do you think, Rory, that that um, diplomacy and that ability that the British Prime Minister has displayed in these negotiations, is it going to be helpful as we start to look at some of the other parties that are now involved in implementation, uh, is it going to be uh, an important asset that uh, that he, that uh, Sunak has going forward with the parties in Northern Ireland? It, cert- it certainly is, but that's not to underplay that there are some difficult problems to be solved. Uh, I think the Unionist parties in particular uh, and the DUP in particular, I think, still have some concerns. Although it's interesting, uh, a number of Northern Irish politicians are on their annual pilgrimage to Washington for St. Patrick's Day celebrations this week. And Jeffrey Donaldson gave some comments uh, yesterday or the day before, where he recognised that the framework has made the significant progress made as a result of the framework. They still have some concerns. They still have some questions to be addressed. But that's quite a positive statement. Uh, now, that's not to say that in the end, everything will be signed up to, but I think it's a step in the right direction. And frankly, for the economic prospects of Northern Ireland and the people of Northern Ireland, I think that's a good that's a good thing. Well, one of the challenges here is that the details of the framework are, are somewhat complex. Um, give our audience your best attempt at explaining the core tenets of the agreement in the simplest terms. How will this red lanes, green lanes systems system work and what could be some of the compliance challenges? So at its simplest, the, the way the red lane, green lane will work, goods that are destined for end consumers in Northern Ireland, so goods basically go into the big supermarkets or going via the big wholesalers to, to smaller shops, will have no routine checks. They will be able to use the green lane and there will be no routine checks for those goods. Goods that are destined for the Republic of Ireland and therefore the EU single market will have full checks and they will have to use the red lane. Uh, where, it, where it's slightly more complicated, but I think will be worked out over time. Goods where the end destination is not clear will need to use the red lane. Because the framework is, in a nutshell, the framework is a balance between ensuring Northern Ireland's place within the United Kingdom, but also protecting the EU single market. And that, so the red lane, green lane is there to do that. And if in doubt, I think the red lane will need to be used. But the vast majority of goods consumed in Northern Ireland are consumed through major retail, retailers and major wholesalers. So a very significant percentage will be able to go down the green lane. Now, in terms of uh, reassurances and potential problems, people will need to be registered with a trusted trader scheme. That's not a complex process, but they will need to be on, be part of that scheme. Uh, they will need to report what they're doing. There will need to be an ability for the EU and the UK authorities to make sure there's no illegal activity taking place. 
if there is, there will need to be sanctions against those who take it. But I, I think we found that over the last two or three years where the protocol was not very well implemented, there were very few problems. There was very little evidence of goods slipping across the border if it shouldn't have. So I'm pretty confident that once we get this up and running, it should work fairly well. My last point would be that in a world where the politics is good, if we do find there are some teething problems, well, it's easier to solve teething problems when the politics are good. And even the smallest problem is hard to solve when the politics are bad. So overall, I'm optimistic about, about the future. What's the key to making sure that the politics remains somewhat stable and that folks are fo- uh, people are focused on uh, implementation in a way where um, the parties involved are trying to be collaborative? What is the key to that? Just continued engagement, well, making sure that people never really push away from the negotiating table? Completely right. I think continued engagement, I think early warnings of, of, of potential problems and given by both sides. So if the EU think there's something going wrong, you know, it's, it's quickly talk to their UK counterparts, it's quickly get into technical discussions about what the actual issue is. And the same on the, on the part of, of the UK, if they're looking to make legislative change that may have an impact, early warning to the EU. Uh, so that, that, you know, that builds trust and a collaborative approach. So I think I think that's key. And of course, there'll be diplomats from the EU and, and in Ireland and in Northern Ireland and vice versa. And they should keep talking to each other as well. So I'm going to get in. I, w- I want to get into the potential economic impact for um, for the region. But before that, you just you, you brought up a very good point. Do business leaders um, so you, you may, you know, mentioned a lot of the diplomats are going to be very involved, but do business leaders need to get more involved? And what does that engagement look like? Well, business, the business community in Northern Ireland have been the most trusted community over the last two or three years in, in discussions of the protocol and its implementation. So they have been very, very much involved, uh, in discussions, uh, and, and putting forward suggestions for solutions that might solve some of the problems. And that continued involvement is, is really important. As luck would have it, uh, one of the, one of the business guys, uh, a guy called Stephen Kelly, who, who I guess will be in Washington this week for St. Patrick's Day, is also Derry. Uh, and Derry's a small place. We all know each other. So, I mean, we, even though I'm no longer part of the UK system, I'm still a, a, a person that people can approach and, and run ideas through and run ideas past. Uh, so, but, but the business community have, have been a positive force. And the thing they've done, uh, which I think is really impressive and something that maybe a lot of us could learn from, even though the protocol impacted on different businesses in different ways. And for some businesses, even the old protocol worked quite well for them. They took a unified approach and they decided that it had to work for everybody. If it didn't work for everybody, then there was a problem. Uh, and I think that's something that politicians and, and, and even and even diplomats could learn from. But, but overall, I'm confident in their old business will play and continue to play. Yeah, that's an important lesson for, for industry that uh, really want to uh, – a breakthrough with policymakers and and also form coalitions of support with the public is uh, speaking with and strength in numbers, speaking with a unified voice. Yeah. So I want to focus on impact. What do you think is the potential for the new framework to provide uh, a big economic boost to the region uh, and to the people and business uh, businesses that are involved? Look, it really is, I think, very significant. Uh, uh, as the Prime Minister said when he was in Northern Ireland uh, the week before last, Northern Ireland is now in a unique position. It has access to the world's biggest single trading bloc, which is the EU, and it, and it also has access to one of the world's top six or seven economies, which is the UK. Uh, and there's nowhere else on earth that has that that, that same level of tariff-free, barrier-free access. And, and so there, there is real potential for 
companies to, who are thinking about getting involved in Europe to have a good hard look at Northern Ireland. The other thing I'd say, and it's not just going from there, it has a highly educated population. Uh, one of the problems in the past is that the population are educated and because of lack of, lack of opportunity, they've left. There's not a real chance for young people in Northern Ireland to, to go to university wherever they wish to go, but then know that they could return to where they're from to, to, to do jobs. And I think in terms of both the economic, but also just the societal uh, benefits that that could derive from Northern Ireland are really quite significant. How big of, how big of an impact that has that been, Rory, in your lifetime uh, as a drag on the economy, which is the issue of non-returns? And sometimes its greatest export from Northern Ireland has been its people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's completely true. I left, I left Northern Ireland to go to university in England in the 1980s. Uh, and I still, my mom and dad are, are still there. I have two sisters who are there. I have many friends who are there. But I, I haven't lived there now for, well, I've lived outside Northern Ireland for longer than I lived in it. Uh, and that is, you know, I, I wanted to get away at the time. I was happy to be a student uh, in, a, in another place. Over, over the years, I have thought about returning. Uh, but the economic prospects are less. Uh, they, they have improved over the last 25 years. But it still lags behind the rest of the UK. Uh, and the, the amount of private sector investment and employment is is not is not high, but I think this really does give a big opportunity for people to look at it. I mean, it, it has some of the best schools in the UK. It has some of the best uh, O level and A level results, so it really does have uh, a skilled and educated workforce. So, uh, I mean, if I was if I was running a company and looking to, to set up somewhere in Europe, I'd be looking very closely at Northern Ireland. So I think there's there's anecdotal evidence there in Northern Ireland right now that there's some optimism, um, but the empirical evidence is pretty solid as well. A recent study by uh, OCO Global uh, forecast that the potential for 33,000 jobs in the next 10 years with tourism potentially ticking up over five and a half million visitors a year to Northern Ireland. Uh, do you think that would make a, a big difference? I think I, I think we, we could push those numbers significantly. I mean, tourism has been has been improving uh, for for the last few years. Game of Thrones is, was probably the biggest boost to the, the Northern Ireland economy in, in, in recent years. It's filmed there, and people go on specific Game of Thrones um, tours. It's not a program I've seen much of myself, but I'm I'm, I'm told people like it. Uh, it also has some great heritage. Uh, you know, the Grand Giant's Causeway is a World Heritage Site. Uh, the city I'm from, Derry, is the, is the biggest walled city, I think, in the UK. Uh, the beaches and so forth. If, if the, the one thing that we could fix that would make tourism better is the weather. But hey, you don't get... Ireland isn't green because it doesn't rain. Well, I, I was in uh, Down, County Down last year for a couple of days, and I had 70 degrees and not a cloud in the sky. So I maybe maybe we just need me to go back there more often. I, I brought the good weather maybe with me. Answer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to get a little bit into the politics of it. Um, what do you think the prospects are now for a functional Northern Ireland Assembly at Stormont? Can they finally elect a speaker? Think, Can they finally begin demonstrating that they're ready to govern? I, I, I look. I, I think that's the that, that's the biggest question, uh, and that's a question that I think uh, politicians in Northern Ireland, uh, Jeffrey Donaldson in particular, but not just him, will be thinking about now uh, and over the, and over the coming weeks. Uh, I think the prospects of getting the assembly back up and running are as good as they have been, but it's far from certain. I think the DUP need to have, and other unionist parties need to have a, a good hard look at what's there. Consider the alternative. What's the counterfactual? They they don't reform the assembly. 
Uh, I think the framework stays in place anyway. Uh, we have another election. We have increased stability. I mean, you, you basically need two things for businesses to, to prosper and, and to consider what they want to do next. You need two things. You need sort of regulatory certainty, but you also need a bit of political certainty. So the Windsor Framework brings a degree of regulatory certainty. People understand what the rules are and how to comply with them in order to really benefit from that, getting the assembly back up and running uh, is important. And it also, in, in, in the way that uh, sorting this problem allows the UK and the EU to move forward and tackle problems, whether it be Ukraine or China or the energy crisis or, or climate, uh, I think the Northern Ireland Assembly getting back up and running would allow people to worry a bit less about uh, checks on goods coming from GB and worry a bit more about NHS waiting lists or education or the cost of living crisis that people are facing. So there is a real opportunity to, to allow this to be a to turn the page and move forward to getting on with the things that really matter to people on the ground. So if, if we're looking to prioritize one or two things that businesses can do in order to achieve or at least have a voice in that effort for more regulatory certainty, what what should they be looking at or doing? So look, they got they got to keep. Uh, there will be changes both the UK and the EU over time. Now, probably not as big as people fear, but there will be changes over time. I think the business voice has to be heard loud and clear and unified, unified if possible, uh, on the implications of those changes, particularly if the implications are negative. But there will be there will be cases where they could be positive. So I think business need to remain plugged into the developments on the regulatory side and make sure that, that their voice is heard, because in the end, the people who know best what the impact of regulation is, is the person who has to implement it and the person who's held corporately responsible for ensuring to comply with the law. So business have a really important voice and we should be listening to it. So again, just I want to end with uh, some of your insights on the politics of it, but what's the risk for the political parties who don't embrace implementation in, in, a, in a, with a higher degree of good faith? Is there a risk that they become marginalized? There, there is a risk. I mean, the ultimate risk in the end, if, if, if we can't get the assembly back up and running, then the, the UK government has to call new elections. That, that The legislation says that. Uh, you then get into another electoral cycle. Uh, that, that that creates uncertainty. It creates uncertainty on the ground because, uh, you know, what, what, what will the arguments be? An argument against uh, the Windsor framework, which is quite a significant concession by the EU, and I'm not sure the EU will concede any more. Uh, so there, there are there are implications. The implications could be for overall stability. They could. The other thing, of course, is that when you stand for an election, you, you either gain votes or you lose them, uh, and that, that in itself can create some problems. So I think the the best thing to do is to avoid getting into that. You know, the best thing to do, I think, is to recognise a good deal when you see one. Maybe recognise that 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 it isn't the most perfect deal you could get, but we shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I think there's very little doubt. When you when you read the various commentary around the framework, there are very few voices who don't think that it's a significant improvement on what was there before. And and of course, over time, we can look to see whether it can be improved again. But much better to be improving something that you're implementing than refusing to get involved and refusing to re reform the institutions. I think down that road lies uncertainty, and uncertainty isn't isn't good for the prospects of Northern Ireland. And um, for those uh, uh, in our in our U.S. audiences uh, who are not as familiar with the political system in the uh, in the in the um, 
uh, the UK and the EU and um, Irish parliamentary elections. How uh, much of a challenge is it when you get into a cycle where you're constantly calling elections and you're constantly litigating these on the campaign trail versus uh, a certain level of stability um, between elections where you have time to govern? Look, it creates a lot. Uh, it creates a lot of instability because, I mean, in, in its, nothing happens during an election campaign. There are rules around what decisions can be taken uh, uh, and significant decisions can't be taken. So you, you have a period of several weeks, sometimes months, where nothing is happening. Uh, and, you know, the, that, that, that in itself creates instability. Uh you get results, and I mean, Northern Ireland is a fairly polarised place. Uh, it happens to be that Sinn Féin were the biggest party in the last election, with the DUP the second biggest. It's not impossible that that could change a bit, but but all the polling I see suggests the next result will be fairly similar to, to this one. So you, you have the worst of all worlds. You, you, you create instability, have an election, and you end up back where you started. And I think that's the thing that we should do our best to avoid. And I genuinely think that all the political leaders in Northern Ireland of all persuasions are, are looking at those questions and thinking about them. And, you know, they, they will arrive at their own conclusions. But I think there is a growing sense that the best thing to do is to, is to reform the institutions, to get, to get going um, and, and keep things under review. I mean, nothing is set in stone. If, if we find in a few years' time that we need to have another look or there are a few, few more tweaks that need to be made, well, that's fine. But if we wait until it is perfect from everybody's perspective, then we never, we, you know, there's no such thing as perfection. I don't think we got to get the best compromise we can. And this speaks like a good one to me. Yeah. And it just feels like one of the key parts of good policymaking is momentum. And it's hard to get momentum if you're starting and stopping and then restarting the process of governing in between uh, quick, totally quick right. fuse yeah. elections, right? Yeah, I, I think that's completely right. And, you know, I, I, I see that uh, Rishi Sunak has invited the president of the United States to visit uh, Northern Ireland. And, I, you know, it looks like he's going to come. That's sort yeah, of how big of a boost is that? Well. I mean, you think back to the Good Friday Agreement and the um, euphoria that uh, came in the afterglow of the agreement when uh, then-President Bill Clinton visited um, your home area of Derry. And um, the goodwill yeah. and the momentum and uh, the collaborative spirit that that brought about. How 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 much uh, how bullish are you on the prospects of maybe a presidential visit to the area helping? Look, I think it really helps, and I think the thing that would help as well is if, if the, the the president's economic envoy to Northern Ireland, Joseph Kennedy the uh, third, comes with him, brings some business people. They have a look at what Northern Ireland is like. They think about investment there. I think a combination of a bit of political momentum, a bit of economic momentum and development, I think those are the sorts of things that particularly the young people in Northern Ireland will recognise and appreciate. I mean, I remember I met Bill Clinton. It was some time after the Good Friday Agreement, but he came to Derry to do a dinner. Uh, and he, is, he was a superstar. I mean, it was amazing that people remembered the Good Friday uh, deal. They remembered him visiting the Guild Hall. Uh, and when he came back, he was it was like a pop star, and, and 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 so that sort of thing I think really resonates with people. And of course, the links between Ireland and and the United States, both communities in in, in Northern Ireland and the United States are strong. Uh, most I, I, I read once somewhere that the county in in on the island of Ireland that has provided the most presidents uh, to the United States is County Antrim. 
Uh, and that is probably Presbyterians who moved over to, to, to the States way back when. Uh, so the links are not, it's not, a, it's, a, it's not a, oh, the, the Catholics are earning to America and Protestants aren't. I think both communities have very strong ties into the U.S. And a, and a U.S. president is a U.S. president regardless. And I think him coming really does help. And it should give a boost to things. But, but let's see. But, but personally, I think, I think it's a really positive step. Well, you know, Bill Clinton still recounts that that was one of the highlights of his presidency, his trip to Belfast and Derry and um, that uh, in the in the aftermath of the Good Friday Agreement. So, well, there's I think there's there's still a lot of optimism. There's still a lot of hope that uh, that this trip maybe could um, serve as a reminder of some of the goodwill of the past. Well, Rory, there's still so much more to discuss on this issue. Um, so much is going to change in the coming days and weeks, um, uh, even even months and years, um, as the policymakers involved and everyone with a stake in the outcome of the region's economy continues to weigh um, the impact of the implementation of this agreement. And of course, the team here at Penta, we're going to make sure that we're always one step ahead of all of the latest developments. And among the folks leading that team will, of course, be you, Rory O'Donnell. <laughs> Rory, so thanks so much for taking time to connect uh, for this podcast today. Uh, I'm sure you and I are going to be talking about this issue again. Look, I'm sure we are. I, the first time doing it, I really enjoyed it. So we'd be happy to do it again. And I can only echo what you say, Kevin. Uh, a, a company that has offices in Washington, New York, uh, Brussels, Dublin, uh, uh, London, uh, and people like me who, who were, have been involved in the inside and the outside of this thing, uh, I think we really have quite an offer to make. So I look forward to working with anybody who wants to talk to us about it. Same here. And we uh, we look forward to working with you. The sun never sets on the Penta Empire. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> so thank you to our listeners uh, for tuning into this episode of What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. To learn more about Penta, you can visit our website at pentagroup.co. That's pentagroup.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn.